when you think about the buyer psychology behind that, if you have to wait two weeks for something, you might have asked for it when that problem was top of mind. But if you have to wait too long, eventually you you get distracted or another problem comes up that's more high priority. So your proposal really needs to stand on its own when it gets passed around and forwarded to the person who holds the keys and holds the budget to understand the, the value of what you're providing. It's not just, here's how much it costs, sign here. It's, here's how we're going to solve your problem. You're listening to Customer Show, the podcast that explores what makes people tick, click, and buy. I'm your host, Caitlin Burgoyne. I'm a marketer by trade and a four-time founder by choice. And I believe whoever gets closer to the customer wins. So here's the multi-million dollar question. In a world where everyone is fighting for your buyer's attention, how do people like us, marketers and entrepreneurs who want to drive more sales without working around the clock or resorting to shady marketing techniques, how do we persuade more customers to buy from us? That's the question, and this show has the answers. If you're a founder who has big ambitions for your business, or maybe a future founder, then this episode is for you. We're going to hear from a resilient entrepreneur who's overcome many obstacles to build a company that eventually became a huge success. My guest and I today, we go way back. We first got to know each other years ago when I hired his team to help me build my first app. At the time, we were both running our respective digital agencies by day and working on building the next big tech company by night. Well, one of us succeeded on making that dream happen. And spoiler alert, it was not me. So my guest today is Kyle Racky, the co-founder and CEO of Proposify. Proposify is a proposal software company that recently broke the $8 million in annual revenue mark, and they are on their way to be a $100 million company in the near future. In this episode, you'll hear how Kyle was able to turn a problem he experienced every day into his next business venture. He'll also go into detail about how he designed his business to start in one market, and then he grew into another when the timing was right. I'm thrilled to share my conversation with Kyle. So let's jump right into hearing him tell us the backstory on how Proposify got started. Yeah, so I mean, a few years into running this agency with about 10 employees or so, Kevin and I, my co-founder, realized we really didn't want to be in the service game. And we wanted to find, like many other people before us and after us, we wanted to kind of create a software as a service product. And we had tried a number of different things. Social Gopher was one. And that really came from, that wasn't really my baby as much as it was Kevin's. Mm -hmm. Kevin was going out and selling these social media analysis reports as kind of like a, a nice foot in the door offer for clients because it was unique and it was different and you know, there was a lot of demand for it at the time. So we kind of thought, look, well, let's productize the service. Let's actually build like a crawler that generates these reports. So that was kind of the first idea. It didn't really go that far because I think we just realized the investment required to do it properly was we just couldn't afford it. But mm-hmm. there was that and there was like a, a handful of other product ideas we tried before settling on Proposify. I think that that is a great note because I think a lot of people look at the success that you've had with Proposify, look at the success of other, you know, tech startup founders and assume that they just got it right out of the gate and that they figured it out. But as you said, you know, you have to have that one big failure to really kind of figure out how you want to play the game and to learn from those mistakes. And so Proposify 
comes along, the idea for Proposify comes along. And why did you decide that this was the one you wanted to pursue more? Like, why did you end up making the commitment fully to Proposify? What led to that? So, I mean, just going back to the previous point, which I think answers this question, uh, this kind of just struck me, but I think it'd be valuable for your listeners is that I think there's different types of failures in business. One is guess that the market wants something and they don't want it. And that's the kind of stuff you talk about all the time. The gospel that you preach is understand your customer, understand your market, know what they actually want that's going to solve their problem. Mm-hmm. But then the other kind of failure comes from just poor management. You, you might have a business with customers and they might be buying, but then the actual act of being able to hire properly, being able to lead effectively, being able to manage finances and keep money in the bank, like that's a different type of failure. And so I think that's really good to carve out those two distinctions of like, you can have a business with revenue and still run it into the ground just by managing it poorly. Oh, absolutely. And when you, like, you know, when you look back at the companies you did prior to Proposify, what kind of categories did they fall into? What, like, was it primarily the challenge of not having demand for the product? Did you have, did you learn a lot about management that you'd applied later? I think for for the service company, I'd say it was the the latter about poor management, poor leadership. I'd say for the product ideas, those weren't really companies yet. They were just kind of more like, you know, MVP sort of ideas. And that was totally lack of demand. It was lack of demand or lack of proper execution of it. Because I think like we were working on an extranet, which I think probably could have been successful if we wanted to raise a pile of money and pour, you know, millions of dollars into it. I, I think all those products may might've had some potential. Like for example, site T was a little product that we made and it was really like a, a shitty Wix or Squarespace. Mm-hmm. It's not to say like there wasn't demand for, but there was just r- no customer development at all other than like, Hey, we have customers who don't have budgets. I wonder if there's a way we could just programmatically spit out a site you know, template for them right. um, that they pay a subscription fee for. But it just like there was the execution was was really poor. But I'd say in all cases, I didn't do I did almost no customer development. Proposify was the first one where I started to kind of figure it out. And I started to go like, okay, this is a big problem. People hate writing proposals. Lots of companies do it. But I started to get really tight on who we were selling it to, which I never did in the past for any other business. It was always just like, hey, whoever wants it, not I'm going after 10 to 20 person digital agency companies and talking to their owners. I love that. Can you walk us through how you went about doing that in the really early days? Once you thought that this was an idea that was worth pursuing, how did you go out and actually do that customer discovery to feel more confident? So uh, a lot of it at the beginning was organic, local type of discussions. I knew a lot of agency owners being in the, the business myself So a lot of it was just hitting up contacts that I knew personally. Funny enough, a lot of them didn't want to give me any information because they were worried or they didn't want to use the product because they were worried that I was going to steal their proposals. And uh, That makes sense in a small market. What's that? That makes sense in a small market when you're going to your competitors and being like, give us your proposals. They're like, F no. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of them didn't realize that my head was completely out of the agency game and I wanted to get out of it. They didn't trust that, so... Fair enough. The other, I mean, the other thing too, other than just kind of these these discussions, like I sat in um, with one of the guys at Extreme, one of the you know directors or 
or kind of top executives there. Mm-hmm. And which is uh, an agency here in Halifax for anybody who's listening, mm-hmm. one of the bigger ones. At the time, I think they were probably like one of, if not the biggest, and uh, kind of showed them what we were doing, got some feedback on it. I don't think I, I ran customer discovery the textbook way you should. It was much more of a kind of chat. Mm-hmm. There's probably a lot of confirmation bias happening. But in the end of the day, the bigger ones wouldn't use it anyway because they are generally slow to adopt tools. They're usually not terribly well-run businesses. And and so I kind of realized like it's actually the smaller. Now, this was at the time things have changed. But at the time, I thought, well, it's more like five, 10-person shops like mine that actually would use a tool like this. And I was right in that assumption. So then it was a matter of you know put out a, a website with kind of uh, an email capture, run a few AdWords campaigns, build a little bit of SEO, start a blog, like just start to build some traffic and demand and then collect email addresses and start reaching out and trying to have those conversations. In your very early days, I know you got some advice that was like, you know, you need to hire salespeople and you need to focus on sales, sales, sales. And propose if I didn't go that route, you guys really did more of a inbound approach and you created great content. You really knew the audience. Looking back, I know now you are very focused on sales. Do you still think it was the right decision to prioritize inbound, not to get salespeople in the early days? I think it was. I would still do it that way today because I think when you have a SaaS product, if you've decided to go to start down market and sell to really small businesses, or at least for very cheap subscription prices, I'm talking 19, 30, even up to $100 a month, I think still fits within that category. It's, it's much more of a volume play. So even though, yeah, you're going to you're gonna do a little white glove service on these accounts, mainly to understand them, because at the beginning, you basically have to treat your $20 a month customer like they're paying you $20,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And then as you start to get product market fit and the product becomes more tight and more sticky and customers are coming in on their own and signing up and paying and there's very little support needed, like once you're kind of in that realm then you can start looking at how to scale it. But at the beginning, you have to be very hands-on with every customer. I think the only other way to do it, if you wanted to start with an enterprise product from scratch, the way that I've seen it kind of done talking to others or anecdotally is that you more or less have to go work for a company Mm. and build them the product custom for them and, and make sure you've got it in your IP agreements that you're able to then take that same product and sell it to other enterprises was actually really hard to, to, to satisfy an enterprise customer if you're an early stage startup because you just don't have enough of the infrastructure built to support a big company. We're at a really interesting place in the business. We're, we're kind of at a, a certain point of scale where we're... I guess it all depends who you ask. Are we, are we really big or not? But I mean, we're about close to 90 employees where we just passed about 8.5 million in, in annual revenue, in a recurring revenue, with the goal, of course, to, to kind of scale up you know, more than that and faster mm-hmm. than that. But that's kind of where we're at right now. I like to, to say this, and I say to the, to the team as well, like we have two businesses. One is a more established self-serve business mm-hmm. that makes up the majority of our revenue. And it's those kind of smaller customers who come in through a you know, an ad or SEO, they, you know, they sign up to a free trial, they, they use it. And then if they like it, they put in their credit card and, and pay. And there's very little interaction other than maybe customer support. And that is a really, really steady, really predictable business. 
But if we want to be a hundred million ARR business, then we identified we have to move up market and we have to sell to bigger companies that mm-hmm. that have more of a need of our product. And that part of the business is almost like an early stage startup. It's only about you know a little under two million in ARR and um, still a lot to figure out. You know, building a sales team, building customer success, figuring out the processes, the positioning, the ad, you know, the the marketing. Strategy mm-hmm. to acquire those accounts. That part of the business is still feels very early stage, and it's difficult because at the scale we're at now, a lot of the employees think of us as a big business. When when in certain aspects, we should be thinking more like an early stage startup. Okay, let's take a quick time out. If you're listening to today's episode, I bet you're already imagining how you can apply all these ideas to your work. But before you go out and eagerly rewrite all of the copy on your website or change your whole marketing strategy, first, I need you to ask yourself this very important question. Do you know, without a shadow of a doubt, who your most valuable customer segment is? If not, you're in trouble. You don't have time to waste by chasing the wrong customers. Even with all of these ideas from our amazing guests, if you're chasing the wrong people, it's going to feel like an uphill battle. But if you're ready to stop wasting time on marketing that doesn't work and attract more dream customers, then I've got something you are going to love. I put together a free tool just for you. I call it my customer ranking calculator. Now in a matter of minutes, this quick exercise can help you to gain clarity around which customer segments you should focus on and which ones you may want to stop serving. That sounds good, right? So if you want to download this free tool, head on over to customercamp.co forward slash calculator. That's customercamp.co forward slash calculator. Okay, back to the show. What's the deal with proposals? Why should businesses even have proposals? Like, what are they going to do for them? I mean, I think that the majority of businesses that sell a high-priced product or service are going to use a proposal. You know, some people call them quotes or contracts or agreements. Like every organization has kind of a different word they use for it. But at the end of the day, a proposal is very much a utility that you that you really need to close a deal. And I don't know if anybody gets excited about proposals other than prospects, of course, waiting to receive them. But I mean, really, at the end of the day, there's something that is going to communicate the value of what you're going to offer that particular prospect or customer. And if there's any amount of complexity involved in the deal or customization in terms of the scope of services, add-on services or products, things that are custom to that unique client, you're going to need a proposal. It's getting harder and harder these days to, to involve every stakeholder and every decision maker throughout the sales process. So your proposal really needs to stand on its own when it gets passed around and forwarded to the person who holds the keys and holds the budget to understand the the value of what you're providing. It's not just here's how much it costs sign here. It's here's how we're going to solve your problem. And here's how we're going to show that we actually understand your problem. And that's what a proposal actually does. For companies that are thinking about how they can create proposals that persuade people who they may have not had any conversations with why this is a good project to move forward with, 
For those companies, how should they be thinking about their own potential customers? Walk me through the typical viewer journey, because I know you guys have a ton of data on that. Yeah, the viewer data, I mean, it's it's so different depending on industries, of course. But what, we, what we've found with our data has been that the average proposal has about seven sections in it mm-hmm. and about 11 pages. So that just means that some of the sections are more than one page. But can, being concise is incredibly important. There certainly are customers of ours that have gigantic 50 to 100 page proposals. But I think what we often find is that customers just don't read it. So it's important to be extremely concise and to the point. There's generally a flow or kind of a structure that seems to work for most companies, which is, you know, you've got to have a great cover page. You've got to have a great executive summary, which is where most of the customization is going to come into play. Mm -hmm. Sales rep probably doesn't need to customize, you know, case studies. They can probably pick from a library of existing ones and choose a couple that are the the best uh, and most closely aligned to that prospect. But an executive summary is going to be probably the key thing that the customer is going to read. And that sums up that we understand your problem. Here's how we're going to solve your problem. And here's the results that you can expect. And then from there, of course, it's, you know, it, it might be the exact service or products that you're including, how much they cost, of course, usually comes around the middle. And then you've got some of that, you know, uh, testimonial case study about us stuff that's really just going to back up and prove that you can do what you say you're going to do. And of course, a call to action is important. Mm-hmm. Next steps, um, here's where you sign to, to kind of make it official. Gotcha. I know when I've received proposals from contractors that are looking to win our business, I'm going to be honest, I tend to go very quickly to the page where it breaks down the cost. And that's my usually my first impression. Like I'm not reading the thing in the order that they present it to me in. I'm checking out the costs first getting a feel for whether or not this is where our expectation was. And then I'm going back and reading through it. Am I weird? No, not at all. I mean, most people do that. It's generally the the thing you don't want most prospects to do. And there's ways to kind of overcome that problem. You know, like one of them could be presenting the proposal on the on an actual Zoom call where you don't even send them the link until after you've presented it. That can be one way. So you can actually guide them through the thought process. And here's why this is what we're we're estimating, or this is this is the strategy that we've come up with to help you. So you can kind of guide them along with a call is one thing that works. I mean, just sending a proposal, if it's a high value deal, and just hoping and praying that they open it and they look at it is a huge reason we created the product was because of that problem, right? You email the PDF, you never hear from the prospect again. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. There's also the way you, what you call the budget, right? If you call it budget or pricing, and it's in the table of contents, then of course they're going to go right there. Whereas if you call it like your investment, then sometimes that positions it much less as a cost center and more of a, a, a value piece. But also, it's just a little harder to find in the table of contents that it is the budget. Our data shows um, some kind of interesting things about how like images will improve a close rate by twenty three percent, like proposals that have images which I think really just speaks to putting some effort into the design. Videos also have a lift on close rate. If you're using like a video, which you can do in an interactive proposal, you can actually, again, you're not talking necessarily to the decision maker, but a video allows you to walk them through it, show showcase your your voice, your personality. So that has a lift on, on mm. uh, close rate. 
Very interesting. And so I know that Proposify recently released a new report, and it's called the State of Proposals in 2020. So what would you say was one of the most surprising things you learned from that research? Yeah, so we we released the State of Proposals where we, we poured through our 2 million proposals to uncover those little nuggets of, of data. And then we also updated it after COVID. So in May, we looked at it again to see what's changed, you know, in during the pandemic. And we also broke it out across different markets and different industries like SaaS, event services, janitorial, and so forth. So it's depending on who you are and if what you're interested in, you can definitely search for those reports and kind of take a look at it. But there's there's a lot of interesting numbers about uh, about proposals. I think like one of the ones that I kind of come back to is if a customer keeps opening your proposal, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Mm. I would say that that's probably a good thing because they're they may be evaluating it based on other ones that they've received and kind of comparing and contrasting. I would think. Well, maybe not though. <laughs> You're just like <laughs> yourself. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm 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 questioning it now. So tell me the answer. So the answer is I would say I would agree with you if I didn't have the data, but the data actually shows that proposals that didn't close are viewed three and a half times before the viewer decided to not sign. Whereas winning proposals are only viewed two and a half times before they're signed. Interesting. And so you know that I'm very nerdy about buyer psychology and things like that. What do you think that that insight tells us about the actual reader, the client who's viewing this proposal? My assumption about the the psychology behind it is that people who are don't need to look at the proposal as much or as often or as many times has already made the decision that they're going with with you. They're not confused by anything. They've probably been really well qualified during the sales process. They probably already had an expectation of how much it costed and and they weren't surprised by the pricing. Whereas somebody who is a little bit confused about what they're getting, they have unanswered questions that they they won't reach out and ask their sales rep. They're going to just kind of keep looking at it because they, they're essentially unsure. Do I really want this? Is this the right time? Is it worth the money? They're just, they're just unsure. Let's say that I'm writing a proposal and I want to obviously be the most successful that I can with this proposal. So you've said, you know, photos can be helpful and videos can improve the lift. What are some other tips that I should apply when I'm thinking about how to structure this proposal? So, I mean, the structure is, is generally not what's going to make or break it, but there are things like how quickly they get created is, mm-hmm. a, is a factor because, you know, I saw it back in the days of the agency business where, you know, you would often take two weeks for somebody to get a proposal out the door. And when you think about the buyer psychology behind that, if you have to wait two weeks for something, you might have asked for it when that problem was top of mind. We need to solve this. I'm going to go to these companies and ask for proposals. Mm-hmm. But if you have to wait too long, eventually you you get distracted or another problem comes up that's more high priority. So what we've seen in our system is that 60% of the proposals that get sent through Proposify are created and sent within 59 minutes. Wow, that's phenomenal. Generally, if you've got some kind of a consistent workflow setup going on, then you can really cut the time down. You shouldn't have to customize every piece of the proposal. Like There should be a a content library, uh, a template that you kind of start with. 
So, and the workflow is different depending on our customers. Some of them like to start with what we call the Frankenstein template, which is just, Mm -hmm. it has everything in it. And then you just kind of delete the sections you don't need for this particular prospect. You know, the, the ability to have those variables or those merge fields that kind of swap out, you know, client name and other data from the CRM just cuts down on that manual entry in the admin time. So there's lots of ways that people can kind of cut the time down because, you know, the, the faster it gets out, the faster it'll close. And, and 50% of the proposals are viewed within 80 minutes of sending. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the, the real problem that we're trying to solve for our customers is that it's not just about creating proposals faster. I mean, yeah, our, our product can help do that, but it really is about the visibility piece. Mm-hmm. That most What most people are doing when they email a Word doc or a PDF is they're getting very little or no visibility into how customers are actually interacting with it. And then that part of your sales process is a black box and you're not doing anything to optimize that, it's going to have an impact, right? Absolutely. I mean, for it being such an important asset, you think about your website and like Google Analytics today, if you talk to a business owner that wasn't running analytics on their website, you think that they are just so outdated. Like, how could you not be gathering this amazingly valuable data? And yet they're sending off proposals, which, you know, in many cases are the life force of the company's revenue (laughs) and not knowing if people are receiving them, if they're viewing them, how they're interacting with them. It seems like a no brainer when you compare it to this other high performing asset, which is your website. Imagine not having analytics on your website. How can you not have analytics on your proposal? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really fascinated. I know you have your own sales team now. How is Proposify using proposals in your own business? So we, our sales team, has a template that's that's branded to Proposify that we send out at a certain stage in the process. We kind of eat our own dog food in that sense where we have our own managed package that we use within Salesforce. Proposals can actually get created within Salesforce without even needing to open a new tab and go into Proposify. So a lot of bigger sales teams love that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But really it's it's uh it's you know I think stage seven in the <laughs> I don't have the our process in front of me at, at this moment, but there's a certain point where it's the right time for our reps to send out a proposal to the prospect. And and we have the, you know, the whole template set up in our system so that we can track what our reps are doing and who's opening it. And then once it's signed off, then it updates Salesforce and the deal's closed. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you've integrated into either the product or your marketing messaging that really showcases what your end user cares about? Like, how have you taken the insights you've discovered through customer discovery? And what has that meant for your product roadmap? And what has that meant for your own marketing? Very interesting question. And I think you're you're going to find the, the answer pretty interesting too, which is that part of our struggle is the fact that the small customer, which again, makes up a big part of our revenue. What we found is that the message that resonates with them is very different than the one that resonates with the mid-market customer that we're actually putting much more of our focus into building that side of the business. So it's been a little bit of a balancing act to try to figure that out because we don't want to completely alienate small businesses, but we do want to make it really clear that we are helping larger sales teams and we're putting more of a focus on them. Mm-hmm. So when we did a positioning exercise earlier this year with April Dunford, um, oh, and then great. we tested that, yeah, uh, she's a legend, right? Mm-hmm. 
Then we tested the, that messaging and that positioning out in the market with these ideal customer profile. You know, we tested it out in the market. We we ran some outbound campaigns. We got customers on the phone. We ran the positioning with them and recorded it. Mm-hmm. And then we used that to then build out the rest of the messaging. So actually, we're in the process of rolling this, this new positioning out across the website and across all of our marketing. So here's where it's different is that small customers, like you say, they care a lot about the image of looking better, creating proposals faster, mm-hmm. um, having a really great presentation and really great design that's going to make them stand out. And that is the ki- kind of messaging that we always ran with because it worked. Mm-hmm. A mid-market customer, we kind of finally had this epiphany that they actually don't care about any of that. Mm-hmm. They don't even really care at the end of the day that much about the speed. Um, because a lot of our competitors say like, spit out proposals, you know, 50 times faster or make your proposals look amazing and beautiful with, with great, you know, do it yourself or, you know, WYSIWYG builders and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. The, what the mid-market actually cares about is control and visibility. Right. So the problem they have is that they've got 20 reps or 50 reps who are all doing their own thing, sending out their own documents. And a lot of times pricing goes out with errors or, or discounts that weren't approved. The client signs off on the pricing after a lot of negotiation, and then it doesn't get properly reflected in the CRM, which then doesn't get correctly applied to the billing system. Typos, wrong client names, outdated copy and content. Like This is the actual problem that they have. And because they have no visibility and because everybody is using Word or their own tool, they they it's a big black box that they can't see into mm-hmm. and that is actually our positioning that's so good like and it's so great that you know you look at what the competitors are doing that might also be chasing that market and clearly they aren't having those conversations and they're not working with somebody as brilliant as april to help them kind of crystallize that into a positioning because they're still treating them all as though speed and design is the thing that matters whereas you guys have clearly identified a different value proposition that is uniquely painful <laughs> to that market and then reworking your messaging i love that now can i ask like when i know that you're moving towards that market and that right now it makes up it sounds like about 25% of your annual recurring revenue but you want it to be, obviously be a lot more have you thought about you know, eating a little bit of your own dog food in the sense of having two different web experiences, depending on where people are coming from, you know, like this ad set is sending to we know that they're coming from here. So we're going to show them this. And if they're coming from here, we're going to show them that is this something you've looked at doing? I have thought about it. And I mean, I'm totally open for discussion about it. But my kind of thinking is that Companies that basically are saying like, you know, uh, Shopify is probably a really good example. Like we're here for small businesses who want to set up e-com stores. Well, there's probably a reason why Shopify created Shopify Plus was for the exact same reason that churn is really high with small customers. Um, And so Shopify had to move up markets. So they, you know, created Shopify Plus. It's more for like larger enterprise businesses. And they have almost a completely separate experience for them. Mm -hmm. Where... Where my belief lies is that you have to be very, very clear and honed in on who your perfect customer is and speak to them. And the chances are, if you do that, you're still going to get a lot of people who who want to use your product anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a big believer in being super focused on that audience. And at the same time, accepting that you're going to get some not so perfect fit people who are going to be um, attracted to the message and they're going to want to use it. And sometimes they're maybe not going to get what they want out of it because... 
you know, it sounds like in your case, the product was initially built for that small business customer, but now you're moving up market and you're really adding new features and making it apply more to this mid-market customer. But yeah, I, I'm a big believer in like casting your net very specifically. And if you're getting in others, that's okay. But if those are the people that are dissatisfied, that's okay too, because maybe they're not the ones that you wanted that you were trying to market to in the first place. So for anybody who's listening again, like if they're, if you could leave them with one tip to help them, maybe something they could do quickly in their own proposal today to improve it in some way, like what might be the one thing that you'd say that people should think about to improve their own proposals? Start using a tool like Vidyard to record a video for every proposal you send out where you address the buyer and you present the proposal to them and, and embed that right in your proposal when you send it out. Because it, it's idea. proven to have a higher lift in conversion. And Vidyard is a free tool and it's so easy to use. So what a wonderful tip that anyone can take in action. Awesome. So Kyle, if people want to learn more about you, if they want to follow your journey as a founder and get to know, you know, maybe read your book, like where should they go? For that kind of stuff, they can definitely check out my personal website, which is just kylerackey.com, R-A-C-K-I. And that has like links to the book and, you know, social media and that kind of thing. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn these days. And other than that, you know, they can check out the product at Proposify, P-R-O-P-O-S-I-F-Y.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kyle, for being here with us today. Thanks for having me, Caitlin. Hey there. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the show. I absolutely love getting nerdy with you and our guests each week. It is just so much fun. And speaking of nerdy marketing stuff, have you heard about the power of reciprocity in marketing? Reciprocity is one of the best methods you can use to persuade people to take action. It's simple. Give something small for free before you ask for a sale. You see this all the time in marketing. Sometimes it's a free sample, a free trial, or even a free podcast like this one. With that in mind, I've got a small favor to ask. If you've gotten at least one aha moment while listening to the show, could you go to Apple Podcasts and give Customer Show a five-star rating? It'll only take a few seconds, and ratings are really the best way to help new people discover the show. I see every rating, and I'm beyond grateful for each one. And who knows? Maybe one day you'll need something from me, and then I can return the favor for you. So thanks again. 